to the Ransomware Battleground, where we dive into the world of cybersecurity and hear firsthand from those that are deep in the fight to protect your data and peace of mind. Think your network is secure? Let's check out how secure you really are with this week's chat. Ransom Distributed Denial of Service Attacks. I'm joined today with Paul Fredrickson, cybersecurity consultant, most recently with Dell, and Andrew Sanford, information security and privacy team lead at RainFocus. He's also a noted published author of academic articles and a contributor to the world of cybersecurity at Medium. I'm your host and moderator, Sia Yasotornrat. Before we get started, I've got to give a shout out to our sponsor, AirGap, the best defense against ransomware. With the Zero Trust Isolation platform, AirGap confines ransomware to a single device. Put an end to threat propagation and protect your infrastructure in minutes, not months. And now, let's enter the battleground. Good morning, good afternoon, and evening. Welcome to the Ransomware Battleground. I'm joined today by some great people that I know you're familiar with, the ever so great and useful guide, Mr. Paul Fredrickson. How are you, Paul? I'm doing well. How are you? And are never you? sarcastic. Never sarcastic with me. Never, at all. never, never. Or snarky <laughs> or anything. Yeah. Or give me attitude for anything I ask of you. Oh, sorry, Andrew. Our special guest today is Andrew Sanford. Andrew, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Hey, I hope you're ready for this rock and roll ride because I hear Paul and I have a great banter. <laughs> well, it'll be fun okay. to observe and uh, forget to know you won't watch this interview, then I'll uh, throw some out too. Awesome. Well, hey, we're going to be talking about some fun things today, gentlemen. Um, I'm sure we've all heard of denial of service. It's, you know, a thousand years old. But, um, you know, one thing we want to talk about today is ransom, distributed denial of service attacks. Uh, it seems to be on the rise, especially with the pandemic. It seems like pandemic rise, ransomware, hacking, attack, extortion seems to all be like in the same sentences over and over again. So we're going to do a little deeper dive um, into the mechanisms of DDoS, right? Um, and so I really want you guys to help me understand, you know, what is it that we're looking at? Because I'm getting confused with all this terminology. So, Andrew, if you don't mind helping me, could we just simply define what is ransom DDoS? Yeah, so uh, DDoS stands for Distributive Denial of Service. Uh, basically, it's where attackers get uh, or or have controlled uh, a, a number of computers, um, smart home devices, IoT devices, and they just inundate a website or a service with a ton of requests. Um, and it ends up bringing the site down. Uh, the ransom denial service, uh, basically the attackers add on a payment extortion demand. So that can either be beforehand saying, hey, we're gonna DDoS, uh, we're gonna take down your website, unless you pay us X number of Bitcoins or whatever it is, or it could be an ongoing attack. And then they could say um, like, Hey, we'll stop DDoSing you if you pay us this. So basically it's another form of extortion uh, wherein they try to take down your website. Oh, wow. So if you're hearing this then, so Paul, I know we had discussed a little bit earlier on, but, what is a real big differentiator then between ransomware and then ransom DDoS? And because I'm getting a little bit confused on that then, because I mean, 
how, is it more serious than traditional DDoSO attacks then? Well, it's a way to monetize it, just like everybody else is working from home and, you know, trying to find out new growth opportunities. You know, it's it used to just be done for various reasons, but like everything now on the Internet, everyone's just decided to add a monetary component to it. Got it. So, OK, so it's, it's as always, money makes, uh, you know, world go around. So help me understand then. So what are these like uh, behaviors of the attacks? Is it something that's new? Are they leveraging a brand new innovative way to penetrate a network or get in? Or are we just looking at more con uh, coordinated efforts of old techniques? There's quite a few different ways they can base these attacks. They generally try to do it off of somebody else's infrastructure. So it makes it easier for them, you know, the attacker to run these things. Uh, like recently there was a Plex uh, amplification attack uh, where they used, you know, everybody's Plex servers at home and then they would point them all at somebody else's website and they could, could get a very nice thing. It was like a five to one amplification. So they would only have to put in, you know, for every one unit of traffic they put in, you know, these Plex servers would amplify it five times, which means it's less costly for them to run the internal infrastructure because they're borrowing somebody else's. Uh, the other earlier examples were when they used IoT devices that had unpatched uh, vulnerabilities in them. So they could, everybody had a, like a little camera at home or whatever, and those could all be coordinated to attack a certain website or a property. And I mean, that that part of it, I mean, is it's, it's I, I think you can rent them out as well, which, you know, so that's, that might be somewhat new, you know, where you can just go order them you know, kind of like on the Silk Road, but I mean, that's, that part is, is old. The asking for money instead of just taking somebody out, that's the, to me, that's the new part. Uh, is that what you think as well, Andrew, or? Yeah, that's, that, that's what I've been seeing as well. So um, it doesn't seem like the, the ways that they're DDoSing have really changed. It's more of that they're not asking for a ransom making some sort of monetary demand that's new um and like and like paul mentioned there are um services out there um so there is a thing called ddos as a service um so just how like you know you can go and sign up for a website and get some sort of service from them like you could sign up for your streaming platform um there are websites out there where you can go and sign up and pay um to rent some equipment from uh spread actors from various people um and then you can just use their stuff to go and uh take some try to take somebody down uh the benefits of that are that you don't have to spend the time money effort building up your own infrastructure um there are downsides to it as well but um you know you could have somebody who has very little technical capabilities get on there um and potentially DDoS somebody um that that service has been around for a number of years at this point, but it is something that is important to be aware of. Wow. So, okay, then who are they after? Is this a, we talked about big game hunting. Are they going over after the, the whales, if you will, the big enterprise corporate networks? Uh, yeah, so it, it really depends on the threat actor. So threat actor meaning, um, you know, like how the public imagines a hacker. Um, maybe for a little bit of context that I, I think is really important as I've been thinking about, you know, what to talk about in this interview, but one of the things that's, that's really important to understand 
is there are a lot of different types of actors and a lot of, of threat actors and a lot of different motivations. So the public generally, the, the public's perception of cybersecurity hackers is generally speaking, either a lone actor, lone individual in a hoodie doing some, some stuff or um, it's the nation state attack um, from like the Russian government. Um, both of those are true, but there, there's a lot more in there. So um, there's a group called that, that are classified as activists. Um, these are people who have maybe like a political agenda or maybe they don't like your company. Um, and so they may try to, um, to come after your company, damage their reputation, steal documents, take you offline. Um, there's another set of actors um, that are, it's, it's the cyber criminals. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that organized crime um, has moved largely online. Um, there's a lot of benefits to that. It's a lot, it's a lot more difficult to track. Uh, you can potentially make a lot more money. Um, now they still use both tactics. Um, now the other thing about these cyber criminal groups is that they are also ran as if they were businesses. Um, and so if you think of them as a business, so a criminal business, an illegal business. So if you think about like these actors, um, they, they want to go out and make money. They have well-established operations. They have teams, they have developers. Um, they even have customer support, meaning um, if they ransomware somebody or DDoS somebody and they demand a payment, they have a portal where they will walk you through the steps of how do you set up a Bitcoin account? How do you transfer the money to us? Um, and make sure your encryption key, decryption key works so you can get all of your files back. Um, that's more of ransomware. Um, so it's, so these, like, these are our businesses. Um, IBM had a, their annual threat report earlier this year came out and there was one ransomware group that made over $120 million um, last year. And that's a conservative estimate. So when you think about it, you have um, this one business that had made nine figures and their sole purpose is to go out and to do cyber attacks. Um, you know, the fortunate side is there's a lot you can do to prevent that, even with those high budgets, but it's important to recognize that there's, it's not just lone people. Um, it's not just like super advanced nation states. Um, there's a lot in between. Uh, there's also a lot of overlap. Um, yeah, going back to your question of who do they target, um, it depends on the threat actor. So some will want to take out a specific um, organization. Um, others, and, and this is most common, others will scan for open vulnerabilities and just, just take those down. Um, so it really just depends on the, the threat actor. So, I mean, Paul, do you have any more insights in, into that? The only thing that I could add is it's probably not the large companies that they're going after with this because the large companies have well-established DDoS mitigations in place, you know, such as like a Cloudflare solution or Akamai or quite a other, you know, um, very expensive solutions, you know, so, so that they, you know, because these are, these are such an old attack. Um, but, you know, generally the smaller and the medium-sized companies don't have the resources to pay for this kind of a protection. Yeah, well, it just strikes me as it just kind of goes back into, you know, what I think of traditionally are like the, I don't want to call it like the second tier, 
verticals. I don't want to misinterpret what I'm saying. It's not the high profile financial institutions. It sounds like to me, these types of attacks are going after education, manufacturing, mm-hmm. healthcare. So these types of organizations that just weren't traditionally considered high revenue target education, for example. Right. Um, so what impact do you think it has on these second tier um, you know, organizations? Do you guys think that's uh is it changing the way they have to organize their uh, their structure, if you will, as far as is there going to have to be a bigger dedication to security, for example, a, secu- a security group, as opposed to like an education? Um, if you're looking at K through 12, it's usually a teacher that a library person that they decided to throw in to become the IT director until they hire a dedicated individual. So. What oh, yeah, are you guys no, seeing? I, I, I can I can speak to that because I have a friend who's a teacher in high school that, and they got a ransomware attack and it took down their entire school for quite a long while. And, you know, this is already after they had gone through the smart boards and all the teachers and kids have Chromebooks. And when they when the ransomware came in, they had to turn the entire network off. They had to turn off all the devices, you know, so they had to kind of go back to, you know, the old way of teaching, which was quite a, a, a jarring experience for a lot of the teachers, you know, who had only ever taught uh, on the computer-based platforms. And it took them over a month before they even turned the network back on in the school. So the school had no Wi-Fi because they were, wow. you know, running around trying to figure out exactly what to do with it. And okay. exactly like you said, it was the gym teacher who was also the IT manager, you know, who was probably doing the best he could do, but, you know, he was probably more interested in kickball than he was in the or they showed an aptitude. They knew how to like yeah. install, uh, you know, something. So, okay. Oh, they installed the printer. Yeah. Sadly, that's that, that's the bar in some places. You know, this guy installed the printer once. So he's the IT guy. Yeah. So, okay. So now that we, let's fast forward though. This was like up until most recent times, the pandemic happens, right? And then now we're switching to what was a quote, you know, one-off is now this, you know, the, the standard, which is remote learning. So, mm-hmm. Can we talk about this? Is, is is remote learning impacted by these types of uh, excuse me, ransom, you know, DDoS uh, attacks? Yeah, I mean, anytime you have anything connected to the internet, there's always a risk of that happening. Um, you know, there's there's lots of people as you talk about learning remotely. It could be in college, it can be you know, kids, and if they're classes get taken down, how do you learn, right? That's going to impact your learning, you're going to have to catch up. It's already been a really stressful year. There's a lot of families that are in need um, that are already stressed out and, you know, taking their school offline could be, you know, it could be really bad. You could have more impacts than than what it seems on the surface, right? Um, And then the other thing to consider is the flip side, right? So if someone hasn't... um, Configured their their home network securely, and and that can be really really hard. I mean, there's some simple things you can do, but like when you don't have, when you haven't spent time training or in cybersecurity, um, it it can get difficult. Um, there's a lot of jargon, a lot of terminology, um, and it's confusing. But the plus side would be if your home network has been compromised. Um, uh, those devices, like maybe you have a home printer that's sending out DDoS. Like it's participating in a DDoS attack. Um, you know, your your bandwidth could be slowed down. Um, there are websites or services that could decide to block your IP address, but they don't know it's residential address potentially. 
um, your ISP might notice suspicious activity and maybe you know shut you down as a breach of contract. So there's just a lot of, of potential risks there, and uh, you know, and we're talking about like remote learning. So in that context, it means they won't be able to study as well. Um, and then, and then the other thing is um, even most people rely. On, so I actually for back I come from a multi generation educator. So going back like hundred years, um, I'm not an educator myself, but I'm very familiar with it. And coming up with with lesson plans is really time consuming. A lot of people have those saved online. Um, a lot of learning resources are online today, and so when those get taken down, um, it's not just as easy as like pulling up your old um, like lesson plans because they may not even exist, right? Even if you've been a teacher for 30 years, you may have gotten rid of those or transferred them to the computer. Um, and you're also not set up or prepared for a, like a more in-person physical way of teaching. Um, and then those students who are remote, um, you know, how do they learn if they don't have access to the computer? Right. Well, I mean, yeah, so, I mean, if, there's a lot of challenges around the, around the remote learning and just from a, you know, just the scenario of families adjusting that are not technically tech forward families, right? Where, you know, they're just, you don't have a lot of technology, technology devices in the home, right? I think, you know, certain segments of the population are already digitally native, but there's so much more of a higher uh, population out there that is not as knowledgeable. So this also goes to the remote workforce. You, you said it yourself, you know, it's not just having access to the internet. That's one thing, but then not having the proper security measures in place for these endpoint devices. You know, I, this is kind of going off a little bit, but whose responsibility is that? Okay, if you've got a remote workforce and then, you know, with this pandemic, depending on how it goes and how long it stretches out for, even with the vaccine, vaccines is it up to the home owner to have a firewall some kind of basic you know protection from themselves in their home environment or is it up to the company uh, employees employers to protect their employees as they work remotely or is it they are only limited to securing just the applications that the family uses and hey if their ring wants to get hacked into and whatnot they're going to get exposed so what are your philosophies on that guys i'm just curious uh, it's an evolving area because yeah it's uh most companies, even the very largest of companies, don't have enough resources to secure every employee's home network. So they have to come up with some type of a workable solution. And generally that's a, a VPN product of some sorts, you know, so that you can still have connection to a, a, the company resources, yet it's over a protected way, right? And then the, hopefully your, you know, your laptop you know, assuming it's a laptop, will have a firewall on it so that if your infected ring camera, you know, is on your network at home, it can't, you know, side channel into your work laptop and then get access to everything on, you know, in the work environment, because that's pretty bad. But I mean, I mean, obviously I'm a security professional, so I have multiple firewalls at home, but I mean, I'm a weirdo. So that, you know, that's the, normal people aren't going to do that. I mean, you know, generally the cable company gives you a firewall of sorts, you know, it's unfortunately it depends on, you know, if you have kids in the house or adults in the house who like to play video games and, you know, if they use some of the more insecure ways to punch through the firewalls, 
uh, you know, to gain access, you know, so they can play online games. Uh, that's, that's an easy vector into the home network. Um, so Andrew, yeah, no, it's, it's a shared solution, I guess. So, so Andrew, let me ask you this, uh, and I, I appreciate that Paul, but okay. So you're talking about all these other devices. I mean, just by you're out of curiosity, show of hands, who has an Alexa or echo device in their home? Yeah. Okay. I know because we know what's up. Right. But the majority of the population of my friends and circle of family, like they think it's, a, you know, the bees knees and cats meow because it's so convenient for them. It tells so, you jokes. Why wouldn't you want a little spy that tells you jokes? <laughs> hey, it orders things off Amazon for you while your kids are actually, you know, verbalizing it and you say no. So, I mean, Andrew, so, you, okay, you don't have these types of IOT devices or do you have other types of IOT devices in your home network? Um, yeah, I actually do have some IoT devices. Um, since I'm like a cybersecurity person, I actually do like reviews of the companies before I buy them. Uh, make sure they're safe, but that's not something people can do. And even in cybersecurity, a lot of people aren't going to do that. So for me, I've set up my home network so that everything on the network just stays in the network. Um, you know, I since I know how to do it, I will do scans periodically of my IP address just to make sure there's nothing publicly facing that shouldn't be. Um, and then, you know, like a lot of these other account breaches like to talk about ring happen because of, you know, bad passwords, they'll be not ring on MFA. Um, but, but there is a huge risk with, uh, with the remote workforce, which is, uh, you know, like Paul's talked about how, basically, how do you, how do you keep a device, a work device secure when it's at somebody's home? There's a lot of questions there that I don't think organizations have, have fully figured out and are, are still trying to figure out, but it's, you know, historically you've been able to manage any device that's in your, in your office. But can you control somebody's laptop? Can you um, require them to keep their lap, like their, their gaming systems and their home Windows computer up to date? Um, you know, I, I could see some situations in, in a handful of scenarios where that would be required, like if you're dealing with highly sensitive information. Um, but for most people, I, I think the, the, the best way organizations can address this is by adopting a zero trust approach, which is, which now not everybody can do that. It doesn't work in every situation. So you're gonna have to, you know, you have to play, apply it on a case by case basis, but for the vast majority of places, it's zero trust. And, and what that means is you assume that your device is already compromised or it's, it's on a network that's already been compromised. Basically, you assume that, that it's being surrounded by attackers. Um, and so you add protections onto it. So you, you manage the, your work, the work laptop. You, know, you, you monitor the applications. Maybe you have a deny list or you, you only allow your employees to install specific apps through an allow list. Um, you know, and make sure you have antivirus on, you make sure laptops are encrypted and have your firewall on. And the second part of this, which, which also relates to remote, remote workforce, and I'm seeing more traction on this, is uh, your mobile devices. So, you know, your employees could work on their tablet, on their phone, um, but that has company data on them. And if they're felt like, let's say they've downloaded Maybe they were working on their tablet and they downloaded a document that has a bunch of personal information on it because they were trying to get a report done. 
and then they lose their tablet or somebody steals it, well, technically you've just had a data breach. Um, so you can apply those same approaches to protecting, basically you need to, like as an, as an organization, you need to ask yourself, what devices are we comfortable with employees using anywhere in the world? And then what do we need to do to protect those devices? Um, at the same time, I, I also, um, philosophically, I think you also need to respect people's privacy. So like, you know, I don't think you should necessarily have access to their, their personal text messages and their photos. Um, and there are things out there that, that can protect, that can, can do that. Um, yeah, basically like when it comes to just you know, this, this ransomware and DDoS threat, um, it, it really helps if you take that zero trust approach. So you just took the words out of my mouth because that's actually the direction I was kind of going in, uh, especially with education and, and remote workforce that are, let's be honest, security ignorant, right? Now we we have discussed zero trust. There's multiple components to it. Obviously, from a technical perspective, you have to assume every device is infected or potentially going to uh, be infected by the network. So let, let's talk about this. So do zero trust policies help? You guys, again, this goes back to, I am your end user from hell. Do you want to know how badly of an end user from hell I am? I will double click, though I know everything about phishing emails and be aware of it. If I get an email and I'm busy or multitasking, I'm not paying attention, right? I will double click. <laughs> so what are your guys' policies? If you even just define what a zero trust policy is, because I feel like um, where there's a, a, a SIA in the network, you're going to have to really get that going and define it. So, Paul, you what mean, is your idea? You mean if I send you a picture of a puppy that's an executable, you'd click on it? Well, knowing knowing that you are you, yeah, because I would I would assume because <laughs> I would assume that you're the you're the more trustworthy guy. You're the one that's always on top of, you know, security issues. So, if I receive a spoofed email, I'm going to click it. All right. So I'll just, I'll just spearfish you next time, but that's, that's good to know. But yeah. Okay. So for zero trust, the way, the way I like to, de to define it is, is kind of like a story. You know, the traditional way that we would do network security is there was an inside and an outside, you know, and you had a firewall at that border and that was, you know, that was your, your moat, you know, if you want to use a castle kind of a metaphor, and then all of your applications in, on the inside would talk to each other, uh, but nowadays, I mean, you have insider threats. You have, you know, the, the, that wall, the way I like to think of it is that wall has now gone down to each device. So, you, you know, inside and outside is now on, on the device itself. You know, so now, now everything has its own security on it. And to me, that is what I define as zero trust. You know, because then you have to explicitly allow communication back and forth between any devices internal or internal to external. And that's that's my definition uh, of zero trust, and it, and it also goes with you know defense in depth, and you know all the really good things that you know everyone's supposed to be doing in security. All right, well, Andrew, what are your thoughts on tr zero trust policies? Like, what what would you put together? How would you define it? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Paul defined it so well. Um, yeah, it's, it's basically just um, creating every single device. Um, like, like basically just like not not assuming that a device is safe um, and so you for example you put like antivirus on um, you have 
tool in place that can make sure your devices are like encrypted or password protected. Um, along with this, you also have like really strict access management on the more on the back end of like your security team, wherever team you're responsible, like they should be monitoring for these types of threats, looking at anomalies um, and helping you stay on top of them. Um, for like an individual phone, um, you'd more want to like, what is my most, what's the, what are the devices I use the most? Um, and how do I protect those? So, you know, um, and, and in most cases, right, like uh, maybe I'm getting off track, but, um, you know, for, for the average person at home, Windows Defender generally does a good enough of a job. Um, Macs have some built-in things. Um, there's antivirus for Androids and then iOS devices, Apple doesn't actually allow you to do antivirus. So, um, you know, just make sure you're not jailbreaking your phone. And if you do, then just understand the risks that are there. Uh, and if you're doing that, you probably are already kind of familiar with the risks. And it's not it's not like just an average Joe, if you will, that's trying to jailbreak their their device, right? There's yeah. usually some level of knowledge. So, okay, so you know, so you know, thinking about like AirGap, for example, you know, the, the fact that they've got their zero trust isolation platform, right? Where they've got the kill switch, the second something's identified. Is that, I mean, I feel like it's like a good layer of security to assume people like me, I probably, I'm the reason why they created the product to begin with. I get it. Um, but okay. So where do we go from here? You guys, where do you see the future? I mean, so ransom, you know, you know, distributed denial of service attacks, it's not going away. Well, there's money there's and, and there's great potential for people to pay. Should people pay? Is this mm. something that we have to accept as part of our life and add into our budgets? In my opinion, no, you shouldn't pay because you're encouraging, you're encouraging it, right? I mean, it's, it's why they always say never pay the ransom, you know, because it's, because a lot of times you won't even get your money back, you know, but I mean, it depends if, you know, in a perfect world, you have like a backup, so you don't need to pay that, you know, you don't need to pay to have your files unencrypted, but, you know, some people pay because they, you know, they, they were caught on, on, unaware, unguarded, you know, they didn't have their, you know, disaster recovery plan fully set up. So they, you know, they had no choice, but to hold the slim hope that if they do pay that they would get some of their stuff back. Got it. Andrew, what do you think? Pay or not to pay? Yeah, no, I am um, generally the, the advice is no. Um, I, there are a handful of situations where maybe that like offset is your last resort. Um, and, and, you know, one of the kind of one example, one of the problems with security is there's like a whole lot of theoretical, a lot of possible risks that we see. So, um, but one risk is that, um, like let's say you're, you're a hospital and you do get DDoS, right? Like you need to keep your services up. Um, and sometimes it takes time to restore backups. It can take time to spin up DDoS protection. So, you know, do you take that risk of just paying? But a new problem though, is that um, the, is the US sanctions list and embargo list. So a lot of these groups are technically sanctioned by the US government or labeled as like terrorist organizations or and so if you unwittingly pay a group that is on that list, you could then find yourself in legal trouble pull from the treasury department. So generally speaking, you should not pay the ransom. Um, if you're in a situation where you think you need to, that's 
definitely where you need to bring in your legal counsel um, and, and do a more in-depth review um, and also consider other risks as well or other alternatives. But, you know, payment should be a last resort only for, in my opinion, only for a handful of situations. Um, and again, for the average person, uh, no, don't, don't pay the ransom. Uh, well, you know what? I, I think that's a great stopping point because the bottom line is this. They're trying to go for money. That's their motivation. And if we deny them that access to money, then hopefully they go away and find another way to be evil and mean to us people who just want to make an honest living online, people. So, Andrew, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Before I go off on my rant, how does one get a hold of you or learn more about you? Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I have a... Uh blog on medium from time to time um, so you can look for and underscore sanford uh it's like both movie sanford and sons um i'm also on twitter under the same username so and underscore sanford um and uh i have a private so you can request to follow me um but yeah if you have if any of you have any questions or want to reach out um usually uh twitter is the best place to uh send me a dm so excellent yeah. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts and insights and st spending time to help really educate us on just where the ransom, you know, distributed denial of service attacks have evolved over time. Paul, do you have any parting thoughts? I don't. <laughs> I think Andrew summed it up pretty well. Awesome. Okay. On that note, everyone, our time is up. So be safe, take care of yourself and, uh, that wraps it up for another episode of the Ransomware Battleground. See ya. Dun, dun, dun. Bye. <laughs> Bye.